All right, it's episode 11 of Derek's Discussions here with Zach Musso, Ameris guy. You know, how are you doing today, Zach? Doing great. You know, the summer's winding down, football's ramping up. I'm excited. So what has really got you into, you know, sports? Yeah, so as a little kid, I've always been very interested in sports. You know, my family was big-time sports watchers, big Mets, Giants fans. My grandpa was a big Knicks fan, so I kind of got roped in by the family aspect. You know, I've always been a big sports guy. I used to bring in, like, uh, box scores to show and tell in preschool and read them out. It was, like, my thing. You know, people would be bringing in their pet snake. I'd be bringing in, like, Mets box scores. So I've always been a big guy into sports. And then what motivates you? Because obviously you want to be in the sports field just in general. But, like, what motivates you to pursue that and just, like, continue to go through yeah, I got a lot of passion and knowledge about sports. Just motivates me to get there. You know, if you ever watch someone on TV and you're like, oh, not cocky, but like I can be better than them. It's kind of a motivational factor. You know, you want to be there, especially when you grow up in New York and everything's magnified. You kind of want to be be in the big stage. And then is there any particular moment, whether it be in sports or just your life, that you're like, wow, that moment is going to really make a huge impact on me and my pursuit of sports? Yeah, I actually just got an internship with the fall at SNY. And when I got accepted into it, that was kind of my big moment. Like, oh, crap, I'm going into the biggest media market in the world to be a part of sports this year, especially as the Mets and Yankees are so good. And how did COVID impact you first from an individual standpoint and then second from more of like a sports uh, perspective? Yeah, I so COVID was my senior year of high school. So it kind of wrecked all that. I was a pretty big baseball player, so it kind of wrecked the final season. So that was a little tough. You know, it was nice because you got to spend tons of time with your family. So I enjoyed that. It was weird from a sports aspect because pretty much all my life, every time of the year, there's a different sport going on. And I'm a pretty big baseball, football, basketball guy. Not as much hockey, but there was always something for me to watch. And then there, you know, all you had was the news. So it was an interesting adjustment, but it was kind of good to almost have a refresher away from it. What about from a like sports media perspective? How did COVID impact that? Because obviously, you know, your senior year, you know, you didn't really have it. So you didn't have the opportunities to necessarily do necessarily what you wanted to do. But obviously, you know, now going to Marist College, being part of MCTV, you're able to be on shows and stuff like that. So like, how was that life like? Yeah, no, that was good. It was interesting to step back and, you know, especially in sports media, you know, as you progress, you learn all about how to like fill segments and stuff. It was interesting to watch the different, they got to, had to get very creative over COVID in determining what to air and what not to air because you had all this time to fill and there was no real breaking news going on. But then as I got to Marist, you know, the first year and a half was under COVID. So it was very odd to go in and wear masks to all your different um, shoots and stuff. It felt very unnatural. But to kind of break away, going to MCTV has been awesome. I know you're a part of it. You probably talk about it all the time. It's been pretty cool to go in there, you know, debate sports with your friends. It's It's got all the perfect aspects. You can be serious, have news discussion. You can have fun and debate your friends and even talk about Marist sports. So you kind of have all three aspects of entertaining stuff going into the industry. So that's been really fun. And then obviously, like wanting to break into the sports media industry, your perspective is completely different than someone else's perspective. So what's your perspective slash mindset when just watching a normal game of just like any type of sport, any type of game, just not like from a fan's perspective? Yeah, that is interesting. You do pay attention a little more 
to the more intricate details of the broadcast, how the announcers kind of do something, the camera angles and stuff, especially, you know, as a Mets fan watching SNY all the time, Gary, Keith, and Ron are great at what they do and adding all the different camera effects they've been adding recently with like the angry buck noise when the Mets get hit by a pitch. You know, you kind of watch those things and pay attention more to them because one day that could be you making a call like that. And then like looking back on your kind of like high school quote unquote experience, what was the like importance of sports number one, and then the importance of like trying to break into the sports media field? Sure. Sports. So I played pretty much every sport you can imagine growing up and almost 99% of my friends have come from being a teammate or an opponent on one of those sports teams. So they've kind of shaped exactly who I am. They've kind of helped me create all my friends, even as we don't play sports as much anymore, they've kind of helped shape kind of, the person I am. So that has been a huge impact. I mean, I love sports. There's, it's hard when you like sports so much though, when you go into the sports media field, you know, everyone's always like, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. But you sometimes are concerned that if you love sports and then go into the field, maybe it'll drive you away, but it hasn't. And I'm excited to see whatever comes next. And then what would you say like the biggest impact on your life? Cause obviously like being from a sports family, like growing up in sports, is like one thing, but then also wanting to pursue a career in sports is a totally different different avenue. So who would you say the biggest impact on your life is? It's definitely my parents. You know, they've kind of helped me. They give me the freedom to kind of do whatever I want in the sports field, kind of pick the direction I want to go with my life. And they've supported me throughout it. So that's it's been it's pretty cool to have them in your corner like that, you know, kind of give you the freedom to decide where obviously where you want to go to college and also the kind of finer details you know they're helping me this fall as I move to the city and work at SNY so they've definitely been a big influence kind of letting me decide where I want to go and then in particular is there is there a certain thing that you want to do in the sports media field because let's be honest sports media is kind of a general general topic to discuss is there any particular thing like when you're 40 years old you're like hey I want to be that guy yeah, I'm much more into the broadcast kind of field. My two biggest, my two favorite sports are football and baseball. So obviously, you know, being a part of an announcing team, I'd love to be an announcer or even like a studio host, one of those two. I'm much more interested in front of the camera than writing. The writing has been an interesting aspect that I've kind of picked up at Marist. But, I, you know, calling a Super Bowl or World Series are kind of ambitious goals. But just getting up there and calling some sort of pro game or even college game because I love college football would be a pretty sick place for me to see myself. And then, obviously, like, what was the decision to go to Marist wanting to pursue sports media field? Because, obviously, you know, Marist is not one of those brands you think of for sports or just sports media just off the top of the tongue. It's not as recognized as some of the bigger schools. So what drew you to Marist? Sure. Uh, I live, I only live 20 minutes away. So that was part of it. But really the biggest part of Marist was that it's like you said, it's not one of the bigger schools, but the program's so much smaller. So both of us, I know, got right into MCTV as freshmen and we're on camera. You didn't get those opportunities. You know, Syracuse was another school I look at, you know, you kind of have to work your way up and you don't really get to build your resume until the last year. And here, you know, you got to build right away. And then all these professors, there's four or five professors with links to ESPN, the New York times, Yahoo sports. It's kind of cool to learn through them. And Marist, you know, it's kind of growing by the day too. They're adding more and more cool aspects and, cool shows so it was kind of just the growingness of the program and also combined with all the faculty members who are still currently serving in the field that kind of piqued my interest and then what was that 
you know, just that process, like going back from high school, going into college, obviously, you know, the importance of trying to stay local had an importance, like for you, obviously being 20 minutes down the road. And then you mentioned smaller school and the group, but like what really, you know, made your, you know, decision that much easier? Yeah, I think it was that when I went on a tour, I kind of got to meet the whole faculty. They were all kind of there when I went into one of the um, accepted students day and just kind of getting to talk to them, talk to some prospective students about the different opportunities when you walked away. And that was kind of all the different, you know, having relationships with people before you stepped on campus the first day makes going to school the first day a lot easier, especially in COVID times when a lot of stuff was closed and it's harder. There was less events going on for you to go and meet people. Like knowing them, like I knew Jane McManus, I met Leandra, I met Zach Arth, I met all those people before I stepped on campus. So that was much, that was a big factor in my decision. And then did COVID have any impact on your decision? Obviously, you know, most people during the COVID time, like your class in general from high school kind of wanted to stay closer to home because of COVID, the uncertainty of times, just knowing like what's what's really going to happen. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely part of it. I think I would have picked Marist regardless of where it was located because of all the factors I talked about. But it did help that it was close because, you know, there was a big gap between like October 31st and March like 15th where I wasn't on campus a day because of COVID. So that was that was kind of nice to be near home for that so you didn't have to get stuck in a dorm room but I think I would have ended up at Marist either way and then what is one thing you want people to know about you so that's a deep question you know I'm kind of like a you know we'll go we'll break off this you know serious stuff I'll give you a little fun fact I've hit a hole in one playing golf before and you know that's pretty nice icebreaker anytime anybody asks you a fun fact about yourself because you know it's a it's a pretty low odds for that so I'm a big golfer and I've hit a hole in one that's that's my fun fact you know I live literally right down the street from a golf course it's a par three so it's not you know that extravagant but it's it's pretty cool to you know be right by a golf course especially during COVID when you know pretty much everybody was at the golf course. That's sure. kind of the new, that's a new hobby for us uh, college students. Sure. I love golf. So obviously how did your life kind of change due to COVID? Like, did you ever have a different perspective on life or just different perspective just in general? You know, I mean, I don't think it changes radically as some people. I think the biggest impact it probably had to everyone is you just really don't know what's coming next. You kind of just live in the moment a little more kind of like, I don't know, I'm not a big guy to stress about like the future. So as I was doing my whole internship search this summer, I was kind of relaxed about it. Kind of just told me to just kind of live in the moment, enjoy every moment, stuff like that. And obviously you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but how have sports like really affected you as a person? Like if sports weren't there, like what kind of lifestyle would it be? Dude, I have no idea. That's a great <laughs> question. If sports weren't there, I have no idea what my lifestyle would have been. I'm kind of, I've always been like a big, kind of like a big moment kind of guy. So I think I would be much more interested in politics and the news and covering something like that. I think it still would have been in the media department. I don't know. That's a great question. Sports, sports have kind of been at the forefront. So I've never had to worry about that. I've always, one of my things is like, I like about sports is you kind of, even when you're in school, you're not really in school. So even though I was like, I'm graduated in three years. I've built up a lot of AP credits. I was never 
really fascinated by school. So I would have could have said that, you know, maybe I would have made a difference. I've been like a lawyer, but I doubt I would have ever envisioned myself going to like extra college or anything like that. So probably something in the politics world. All right. And we briefly mentioned just, you know, MCTV halftime on the Hudson. What has that experience been for you? It's been awesome. You know, the first I remember I went to a MCTV Zoom meeting the first week of school. And it was like a little weird. There was like 300 people there. I was like, all right, this is a little intimidating. And then I went and they had like studio tours. So I toured the studio and I didn't really know anyone, didn't really talk to anyone. They sent out the first casting for the sports show. I was like, you know what? I'll sign up for this. I was like, I probably won't get picked or whatever. I kind of wanted to be like the Zoom guy. So I didn't have to go to campus that day. But I got picked to be the co-anchor with Connor. Connor, you know, the guy who runs MCTV. And I was like, all right, this be sick. And so I walk in, I met him. And, you know, it kind of took off from there. I was on camera every week. You know, I become one of like the four main guys of the show. Um, and it, it's been awesome to be able to, like we talked about a little bit before, be on camera, get to break down serious news topics, get to to have a little fun with your friends debating, you know, I remember beating you in the debate show this year, you know, it's been, it's fun. Cause it's lighthearted. You get to be serious at times. It gives you all the different kinds of skills you need. If you ever want to be on camera and it also gives you the off camera opportunities. You can be an editor, you can be the uh, producer, the audio switcher. You know, we did the live mock draft, which was pretty cool. So it's given us opportunities to try many a different things, you know, in college, it's kind of what it's all about because I'm still, I would love to be a broadcaster, but I'm not exactly sure what I want to do. So when you're sitting there and you get to try all these things behind the scenes, it's it's kind of fun. Yeah, and then obviously, you know, halftime on the Hudson is one thing like about MCTV, but obviously there's other shows. But just about Maris in general, obviously, you know, being in sports communication, you know, it's not necessarily all about the classroom. You got to do other extracurriculars outside the classroom. So like how are classes for you? like knowing that you're going into sports because, you know, classes in sports are completely different than just a normal class. So what was that lifestyle kind of like? Sure. No, it was weird. So I'm also in the honors program and there's sports department. So when I, I entered in a year ahead of everyone else. So I was kind of meeting for people who were already sophomores. So when I kind of got in, I didn't have to take all those basic classes. So I kind of jumped into sports quickly, which was good because that's how I met majority of my friends. But it is weird when you take sports classes that it's not that they're not serious. It's just you're doing like fun stuff. And then you go in and take like bioethics or math or something. And you're like, you know, I really don't want to be doing this. So it, it is funny transition, but I think it's been easy. And I don't think the it is weird because you do mix. Like I have friends who have nothing to do with sports and then you have total friends who are sports. So it's nice because, you know, you kind of want to mix it both because you don't want your friends to all be from one area. But it, it has been interesting to try to mix two completely different facets of life together at one school. And then halftime on the Hudson, what other extracurriculars have you done? Like obviously, you know, Marist is a smaller school, so there's not many, as many extracurriculars as, you know, a bigger university, but you know, there's center field, there's, you know, MCTV. What other extracurriculars have you done to enhance your skills? Sure. I was a tour guide, which is an interesting thing to, to join. So I, they, there's not a lot of male tour guides at all. My sister's on like the admissions board and she went to Marist too. She just graduated. And so she kind of recruited me over to be a tour guide. And that is actually a thing that stands out when you put it on your resume these days, because it, 
it's in the communication field. It's all about communicating. And so that has helped. That helps everything because it's awkward. You literally, you people come in, you meet new people and you show them around and ask them questions and have to be very personable. So those were kind of skills that I kind of had, but never really had to put into use, you know, public speaking, all those kind of skills that you think you can do, you kind of get the actual practice to do. So that was nice. And then in sports, I also started writing for center field which writing was never a big interest of mine. And then I started doing it. I kind of like it. And it's kind of made me question if that's kind of a path I would consider going into. So I've picked up both of those things. Uh, it's, it's been fun. The tour guide thing was pretty fun. Uh, writing has been fun. So, I, you know, you try to stay a little well-versed outside of the um, sports department. What would you say, like, obviously, like, Sports is such a huge avenue for not just, you know, people in sports communication, but, you know, just people just from all lifestyles, because this is what I believe. And I've said this on multiple shows here, you know, sports bring people together and it's not necessarily that, you know, everybody, everybody has someone to root for. So it's not like anyone feels left out in sports because there's always something to do, whether it be sports media, sports communication, whatever it is. What has kind of, what have you learned from sports? A lot, a lot. You know, like I said, going back to like the box score thing in preschool, you know, sports are kind of different way. Like, I, I don't know if you don't want to read childhood books, go learn sports and read the box score. You know, it's kind of taught you different things. I think one of the most under told aspects of sports is the lessons it teaches so if you play like I played all kind of sports all my friends were playing sports you know playing baseball teaches you all the different skills like you know when the movie kind of stuff cliche like teamwork you know how to cooperate with others how to make friends meet people Uh, so sports have taught me a whole lot anything that my parents haven't taught me has come from sports too you know it's taught you even some interesting life skills you didn't know you needed like how to be aggressive you know I played football for a little bit how to be aggressive kind of how to like put a plan in action and go do it you know different like because sports are very detail oriented every sport has a ton to break down and you need to work on your details and everything you do in life so it's it's taught me a lot all right and now part two of Derek's discussions personally this is my favorite part because I love talking all different types of sports First, we got NBA. So, Zach, what are your thoughts on the NBA season upcoming? Obviously, there's, you know, a lot of train rumors that have gone down. Stuff has happened. Stuff hasn't happened. Kevin Durant, you know, that's, you know, a huge topic in itself. Donovan Mitchell, just all this news going on. So, what are your thoughts and expectations for the NBA season? Yeah, the the, the rumor mill is kind of getting annoying here at this point. Uh, I, I do – don't get me wrong. I love seeing stars move all over. It creates some excitement, but the rate in which stars are moving over, like the Kevin Durant has four years on his contract and he's trying to leverage his way out of Brooklyn. I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of stuff like that, but as a Knicks fan, I'm just waiting for the news to come in that Donovan Mitchell gets traded to the Knicks. That will make my summer. That's what I'm waiting for. Okay. So obviously you mentioned Donovan Mitchell. This is a question I ask, you know, NBA guys, do you think with the addition of Donovan Mitchell, that the Knicks are in contention, like contention for, you know, like an NBA championship or, you know, a run in the playoffs. I think they're like with Donovan Mitchell, I think they're building towards it. Depends how much you give up. I'd be willing to give up any of those veterans and 
uh, draft picks for Donovan Mitchell. I give up like six or seven draft picks for Donovan Mitchell. He's that worth it. But if you look and you have a starting lineup that's Jalen Brunson, Donovan Mitchell, R.J. Barrett, Julius Randle, and Mitchell Robinson, you're quickly building towards the top tier of Eastern Conference teams. You're not champion. You're not going to win the NBA championship this year. But when it meshes together in a couple of years and you add more pieces from the outside in the NBA to get two stars, you need to get one first. So if you get Donovan Mitchell, somebody else will come in. They'll be building towards it. They're definitely a playoff team. They could even make the second round of the playoff. They just need to build more, give some more excitement to New York. They wouldn't be a championship right away. And this is like a very cocky Knicks fan talking. So they wouldn't be a championship right away, but they'd be getting there. So, you know, you mentioned Julius Randle in that starting lineup. Are you a Julius Randle supporter then? Or are I'm, you a I'm Obi Toppin guy? I'm I'm a little all over the place. It really depends. Yes, it's undeniable how much talent. I think I'd be a big fan of Julius Randle at Donovan Mitchell's on the Knicks because I think Julius Randle, the third best player on the Knicks, is a lot better than Julius Randle, the first best player on the Knicks. Takes so much pressure off him. I think it went like the amount of buzz and anger towards Julius Randle was very overstated this season. Just based off what he did the years prior, if he's the number three option, he's going to be getting much less defensive pressure. I mean, Julius Randle was the LeBron of the Knicks. You know what I mean? He was the KD of the Knicks. Giannis, he was going up against those guys like he was one of those guys, which he's obviously not. You put him in a lesser role behind Donovan Mitchell or R.J. Barrett, I like it. But I I wouldn't be opposed to getting rid of him because giving Obi Toppin some more time, like when the Knicks got rid of a bunch of their veterans this offseason, it was good because now – Quentin Grimes and Obi Toppin and Emmanuel quickly, if they're not traded for Donovan Mitchell, are going to see more time on the court, Jericho Sim. And that's a good thing because they were better than the veterans who were ahead of them. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I want to say is if they get, if the New York Knicks get Donovan Mitchell, the one concern I have is you got one star. You, you got it. You're going to have to get another star because just because right now is Donovan Mitchell, would you say, Donovan Mitchell is a number one scoring option for an NBA title team. Yeah, I would. You would, you would say Donovan Mitchell is a number one scoring option for an NBA yeah. team. Yeah, it, but it, in the NBA, it's all about who you surround yourself with. I could definitely see Donovan Mitchell being one of the number one scoring options. I mean, if you look at Donovan Mitchell's playoff stats, he's dropped 50 points twice. Only four other guys have done that in a playoff game. LeBron, Michael Jordan, and Kobe. Um He's got he's got some ridiculous talent, and especially like in Utah, they were the number one seed. You kind of waited from this year. It's like, are they going to get over the hump? Are they going to make the playoffs? Are they going to be able to get over that hump and be the finals? I think the way they surrounded him in Utah lacked a little bit. The running the offense through a big center like Rudy Gobert kind of failed. He kind of got exposed on defense. So I don't blame Donovan Mitchell. I think he could be a number one scoring option, definitely on a finals team. I think the problem with him is that. He's questionable on defense at times, and that kind of hurts him. So let's just do a hypothetical. Donovan Mitchell comes over to the Knicks. Let's you say Donovan Mitchell is the number one option. What would you say RJ Barrett is? A great number two option. I love RJ Barrett. Another guy who kind of gets lost in the weeds, which is really odd since he's the best player on the New York Knicks, who are one of the most valuable franchises in sports. But he he would be an awesome number two. I mean, RJ is 22 at this point. I mean, he was 19 when he got drafted. At this point in his career, the amount of points he has, only LeBron and Michael Jordan got there faster in their careers. And Michael Jordan was still in college at age 21. So I RJ Barrett is very underrated. RJ, Mitchell, Randall, and now Jalen Brunson, 
who the contract was a little fat, but you kind of have to pay up for guys these days. So I think it's kind of lost actually how good Jalen Brunson is. Like if you look at the playoffs last year, Jalen Brunson outplayed Donovan Mitchell in the first round when they were going back and forth. So I think that's a good team. And I think that gives Donovan Mitchell enough pieces around him, enough shooting around him to help him not have all the pressure. Cause in Utah, he had all the pressure on him. So what would you say Jalen Brunson would be? Would you say he's a number two option or a three on a NBA title team? Probably a three or four, but okay. in that case, with RJ and Randall and Jalen Brunson, he doesn't have a lot of pressure on him. You just got to be one of them. Really, Donovan Mitchell is the one, and then it'll work itself out who's the two, three, and four in that situation, RJ, Randall, and Brunson. But that's those are not three bad options. Those are three pretty good options. Yeah, what I'm what I was what I was alluding to is what would the missing piece be if you had Donovan Mitchell as the one, two, three? Because my belief is Donovan Mitchell is like a one B, a one C. I think you need someone just above him to be the the guy. Sure. Yeah, I get that. And I think when you get Donovan Mitchell, it becomes easier to get that other one A to Donovan Mitchell's one B, because you need one superstar in the NBA to get two. And the Knicks have all of their assets. They have 11 picks the next eight years. And it's also New York. It, nobody has, like, you saw Julius Randle in New York. People were treating him like he was LeBron after he had his one good year. People want to come play. I do get your point. There are definitely concerns about how far Donovan Mitchell can take a team. And I don't think Donovan Mitchell, R.J. Barrett, Julius Randle, and Jalen Brunson would ever as constructed unless they all developed even further into their games be a championship team. You do need more pieces, but the Knicks have tons of young guys. They can get more pieces. I just don't know if those pieces need to be guys that are better than Donald Mitchell. I just think you need one more all-star tier piece, even if RJ Barrett turns into the all-star he's expected to turn into. Okay. So you're, so what you're alluding to is another all-star piece with the combination. So that brings up the question. Let's say they do the trade for Donovan Mitchell, because this is what I think would happen. If this ends up happening and Donovan Mitchell becomes a New York Knicks, they're going to trade these picks, like four, five, six, whatever it is, picks. Quinn Grimes, Emmanuel quickly, and I think it's going to – to make the salary work, because he is making $30 million a year, it's either Evan Fournier or Julius Randle. If you're the Knicks, if you're looking at both those guys, honestly, I'd rather trade both of them. But if you're the Jazz, you're probably looking at Julius Randle. So if Julius Randle goes in that deal, Obi Toppin fills the power forward shoes, then what would you say – Without Julius Randle, what would the missing piece be for the Knicks? Because I was talking briefly on an episode, they kind of need another, you know, starting level guy. The question is, what kind of position? We're talking maybe a Carl Anthony Towns. That could work with the Knicks. Obviously, you know, that's kind of not going to happen just based on you getting Mitchell Robinson. Yeah, no, I get that. I don't don't think the Jazz will trade for Julius Randle. Because the Jazz are clearly, if they trade Donovan Mitchell, signaling they're going to full rebuild mode. And I don't think Julius Randle really helps there. He also has three years left in his contract. I don't think they really want any part of that. Derrick Rose is another one on the Knicks who has a fatter contract. And he only has one year left on his contract that could intrigue the Jazz because he could be out of there after this year. Because the Jazz are going to want to play some of their young guys. But I think if you got rid of Julius Randle, regardless of Donovan Mitchell's trade or not, then Obi Toppin immediately fills his spot. And I think... The only because people are always going to be like, I don't know if Obi can do it. The only way to find out if Obi can do it is by giving him the opportunity to do it. Same thing with quickly. It's like you play them half the game every game, and people are like, play them more, play them more. And Tom Thibodeau never plays them more. Now, after they got rid of Alec Burks, Nerlens Noel, and Kimball Walker, 
those three veterans were clogging up minutes for younger guys who are better than them. Now they got rid of now Jericho Sims is the backup center, second year guy, crazy athletic. He just needs time to develop. You can't really develop on the bench. Obi Toppin at worst is the backup power forward and small forward this year. And Emmanuel quickly is the backup point guard or shooting guard. So they're all going to be on the floor. I think Obi Toppin has proven, you know, him and quickly kind of went nuclear the end of last season where they both had multiple 40 point games late in this season. I think Obi Toppin has earned minutes with the first team. And if you got rid of Randall, I think they would, though I don't think they're going to get rid of Randall because coming off last year, I think his trade value was lower than he really is a year prior when Julius Randle, the year he took the Knicks to the playoffs, obviously overperforming his career averages. Last year, he kind of underperformed. He's somewhere in the middle. He's a fringe all-star player who every couple years should make an all-star team. So I don't think they will trade him just because of his value. I'm not sure the Jazz would want him. But if somebody goes, Obi Toppin's got to take a spot. So that's a lot to unpack. But what I'm going to say is, you know, with Donovan Mitchell – possibly coming to the Knicks, excitement's coming. Now, as a Knicks fan, this is a thing that I think would happen. Would you be willing to trade all those picks and get Donovan Mitchell to be relevant, to just be relevant? Or would you rather have them ride it out, develop the players, and hope for an NBA championship? This is saying basically that if they get Donovan Mitchell – that they're not going to win an NBA championship, that they're just going to be in contention. Just because if you look at the free agent market out there, there's not really that guy who's going to be out there. And the Knicks, if you're trading for Donovan Mitchell, you're basically getting rid of all of your, not all of your picks, but for the the majority of your picks, you don't have that many pieces to trade in another deal. I see what you're saying. I get the point. But the Knicks, as constructed, are never going to win an NBA championship. Like, this roster is young, but it's got the perfect young, like supplemental pieces to trade. I don't think this team will ever blossom into that. They could have runs like they did a couple of years ago. The, the East is too loaded. The NBA is positioned where you can't win without stars and you can't win without two stars. So having zero like the Knicks have, the hope is RJ, RJ Barrett's 21. The hope is RJ Barrett will blossom into that, which I think that's cool. I think there's a good chance he blossoms into a pretty damn good NBA player. I don't think you can count on that. So I think the more talent you bring in may lead to the more, more and more talent coming in. And when you talk about picks, so say the Knicks trade, the Knicks have 11 picks in the next eight years, say the Knicks trade six of those and a combination of Quentin Grimes, you know, one of the salary guys like Fournier and Emmanuel quickly, they're still sitting in pretty good spot roster wise with their young guys and they have a bunch of picks if they want to get another player to come over here. And I think the only way people are going to start coming to New York is if they see consistent success and the franchise is turning it around because you know, they've been clowning for so long. It's kind of one of those things where you have to show you can be functional. The last couple of years, management has been a whole lot better than it was before. The scandals are dying down a whole lot. You have to show you can kind of be competent. And I think the only way you can do that is by bringing in Donovan Mitchell, who's a bonafide all-star to immediately be the best player in the Knicks. Yeah, I think I see your point. I think at the end of the day, the Knicks need to do something. I'm not necessarily sure what it is. It's either this is what I would do if I'm the Knicks. You either get Donovan Mitchell or you do more salary dumps and trade Julius Randle and trade Evan Fournier just because you got to show a direction of what you're going to do. And that's kind of like what I think. And I think at the end of the day, whatever happens, the Knicks at some point will be somewhat successful. 
keyword somewhat successful because it is the Knicks that we're talking about. It's not, you know, one of the greatest franchises that we've seen. Yeah, no, I, I totally get it. And yeah, I'm with you. The Knicks kind of suffered from the being good too early syndrome. They were good two years ago. They outperformed what was on the roster. And it kind of made people think like, oh, crap, are the Knicks this good? And the Knicks re-signed everyone to contracts they weren't worthy based off that one season. And now the expectations were way higher than the roster. So I'm with you. You either got to get Donovan Mitchell and start going for it, or you got to get rid of these veteran guys and let the young guys play. Because these veteran guys are only a part of the future if you're trying to win right now. Yeah, and one thing I want to mention just on the NBA, I think a comparison for R.J. Barrett. Now, this might sound stupid, just because R.J. Barrett's R.J. Barrett is better at going to the basket, but I look at R.J. Barrett and he kind of reminds me of Scottie Pippen. Yeah, I mean, I I kind of get that in that he feels like a awesome supplemental piece and his defense has improved so much too that R.J. Barrett's checking the best guy. Like people underrate Pippen because. He was uh, not a Jordan scorer, but he was behind Jordan, and he was also the elite defender. Like, Jordan has never taken the other team's best offensive player. Pippen was taking him a full game every time. So I get get your comparison. If you're R.J. Barrett, you can never be mad at the fact that you just compared to a top 50 NBA (laughs) player all the time. Yeah. All right, so now moving over to Major League Baseball. Obviously, the trade deadline just happened. So what are your thoughts on the Mets? Obviously, you got a speedy Gonzalez and Daniel Vogel back. I tell you what, people might think he's slow. He's actually pretty fast. Oh, he would dust me in a race. You know, I'm not I'm not slow myself, but he would absolutely dust me. My thoughts on the Mets are the best team in baseball. It's the the way they're producing right now is ridiculous. You know, they they kind of got a little slammed at the deadline because they didn't go out and get any big stars. You know, people like they could upgrade. They did upgrade there. I saw the stat at the DH position. The Mets replaced JD Davis and Dom Smith with three home runs and a 606 combined OPS with Daniel Vogelback and Tyler and Darren Ruff who combined have a 900 OPS Daniel Vogelback's going to play against righties rough against lefties. You combine them together at their position. They have a combined OPS of 900, which equals one Soto. So that's exactly what you got. That's just one different way to build a team. You don't need all-stars. Tyler Naquin's come in, and he's been awesome. Givens has been good out of the bullpen. That's kind of exactly what the Mets needed. And the whole, they don't, they didn't trade for stars thing. They didn't need to trade for stars because they have Lindor, Alonzo, Scherzer, DeGrom, like Chris Bassett. Edwin Diaz has been historically great. And his, his walkout, let me tell you, that's some of the coolest stuff ever. Timmy Trumpet. I'm telling you, and it's it's awesome. It's it's the enter Sandman of the Mets. It's pretty cool to see. And the Mets are at a kind of a dominant juggernaut pace, and they've played such a hard schedule to this point in the season that they have such a soft schedule coming up now that people are going to be like, oh, look at the Mets. They're not playing anyone. Well, they already beat all those good teams. Now they get to play the soft schedule. They're going to coast into the playoffs. You know, that five-game series against the Braves with some – on Mets-like stuff, you know, four out of five against the Braves, up seven in the division now with about 50 to go. I saw the Mets need to be, go 27 and 23 the rest of the way to finish with 100 wins. So it's a historic season, and the, the pressure is now on because the expectation now is World Series or bust. Yeah, and one thing about the Mets is Jacob deGrom is back. But Jacob deGrom, DeGrom excuse me, has an opt-out after this year. 
Talks are swirling. He might he might go to the Atlanta Braves. No, that's just fake news. It's, he's not going anywhere. The Mets have the richest owner in baseball. DeGrom's going to get whatever he wants. The Braves are kind of turning into a cheap organization. I mean, you can see they let Freddie Freeman go just to re-sign Matt Olson or just to trade for Matt Olson, who was a worse version of Freddie Freeman. So the, Bra- the Braves aren't going to do that. DeGrom's not going to leave the Mets for the Braves because he has such a historic Mets career. He's regarded as one of the greats all time. He would destroy his legacy by going to Atlanta. I don't see that. He's also from Florida, so I guess Atlanta is closer, but, like, it's still not. It's still a plane ride away. I don't think he's going anywhere. But him coming out to Simple Man the other day, throwing 102 in the first inning and six perfect innings to start against the Braves. It's stupid that you can be out for that long and come back and immediately reaffirm yourself is the best – I mean, it's maybe you wouldn't say best pitcher in baseball right now. He's the best pitcher in baseball. I mean, I would, I'm a Mets fan, so I don't want to just say best pitcher in baseball. He by far has the best stuff in baseball. Sandy Alcantara on the Marlins has been okay. yeah. good this season. So, and Max Scherzer has been so good, but he was hurt too. So maybe you wouldn't say DeGrom and Scherzer are the best pitchers in baseball. But when we get to October, I'm going to take on anyone in the league over DeGrom or Scherzer. I'd say DeGrom is the best pitcher in baseball. He is the best on I'd say I'd say best pitcher just because of his track record. You look sure. at Sandy, that's a guy who you can say is up there, but Sandy Alcantara is a pitcher I love, but guess what? He hasn't he's on the Marlins, so he doesn't he's get new. as much yeah, credit. Yeah, yeah. He has a year and a half to two year track record. So yeah, no, I get it. But yeah, DeGrom and Scherzer, we get to October. I'm not taking anyone over them. And can you just imagine, you know, a game seven of the World Series? DeGrom's coming in, he's pitching six innings. Scherzer's coming out of the bullpen to pitch two, and he's handing the ball off to Edwin Diaz. I mean, that's that's stupid. Like That's stupid. That is so stupid. I mean, Edwin Diaz has struck out more than 50% of the batters he's faced this season. He's having an historically good season, and the only his song has gained such notoriety just because of how freaking good he's been this season. Uh, he comes, he's blown one, the Mets have lost one game he's appeared in, and you know, we, you would talk about Joey Gallo or someone who struggles in New York and then will never be able to find it again in New York and has to find a new home. Edwin Diaz struggled so badly in New York. He was getting booed. Fans wanted him gone. He's completely 180'd his career in New York and turned into a fan favorite. That never happens in New York. You never suck in New York and then become a fan favorite like that. So that's freaking awesome to see, too. Yeah, and then also one thing about the Mets, um, the pronunciation of Mark... Uh... It's not Mark Canna anymore. Did you see that? It's Mark. I did. Yeah, I saw. And then his wife said, no, it's actually Canna. It's just pronounced like Kanya in like Portugal or something. It's crazy. He said it on ESPN too. I saw that. Yeah, during his little Sunday night mic'd up. So obviously the Mets have a top prospect in the minor leagues, Francisco Alvarez, right? Yeah. What are your thoughts on him? Obviously, you know, there was talk during the trade deadline the Mets could get Wilson Contreras, could get a catcher. You know, that's something that could be a need. They do have James McCann, but according to sources, he's been struggling. So what are your thoughts, number one, on Francisco Alvarez, and then number two, your catching situation? Yeah, I think I love Francisco Alvarez. He's freaking awesome. He's the number one prospect in baseball for a reason right now. He just hits the crap out of the ball. He's also 20 years old, and catcher is the one position – I wouldn't mess with if I was the Mets. It's the offensive weak spot, obviously, but I wouldn't touch it just based off what the Mets pitching staff has been this season. It's been ridiculously good. And Scherzer and DeGrom both love throwing to Tomas Nito, who's been Mets' backup catcher, and his bat's been playing the last couple of weeks. So I don't think Alvarez really has a place on the Mets this season. I think come next spring, he'll force his way into the starting catcher role just based off how 
how well he hits. But yeah, I think it is very interesting to have a catcher like Francisco Alvarez that good waiting in the wings. So what do you say is the biggest weak spot for the New York Mets? Obviously you say catcher, but you don't want to change it. Is there anything yeah. that could change? I, I don't think catcher is a weak spot. I think bullpen's weaker. Outside of Edwin Diaz, the Mets don't exactly have – I mean, their eighth-inning guy is Adam Adovino, who's been phenomenal, but I've seen Adam Adovino the last couple of years too. The The bullpen is a weaker spot. They really don't have a lefty. Joely Rodriguez has improved, but he hasn't been great. I mean, he is much better the last two months. He pitched 2.1 innings against the Braves the other day after DeGrom came out, which – that was the best. That was obviously his best game as a Met. But the Mets don't have a long track record of guys with success in the playoffs or the guys who have had success like Ottavino are just older now. So that is a concern. But when you have Edwin Diaz and you have the starting staff the Mets have, and Tyler McGill is going to come back and he's going in the bullpen because the Mets need more help in the bullpen. David Peterson is going to go in the bullpen. And then you have the starting staff with DeGrom, Scherzer, Carrasco, Bassett, and Walker, all five of those guys aren't going to be starters in the postseason. One of them will be in the bullpen, probably Walker. And then in a playoff game, Scherzer, DeGrom, or Bassett's in the bullpen too. So I guess that is the weak spot, but I think that's the weak spot in the regular season. And it's not that these games don't matter because the Mets have definitely collapsed before. That seven games up in the division, it's just it's not going anywhere. Yeah, I'm, I was looking at your bullpen, and I'm surprised Trevor May – He's been struggling. That's a guy who I thought was going to be pretty good yeah, this year. He was, he was hurt for three months, too. He just kind of came back. But he, ha- he hasn't pitched like the normal Trevor May. Yeah, so that's a guy where could be an X factor later on in the season if he gets back fully healthy. That's a guy who you could look out for in that back end of the bull- bullpen. And the Mets are looking pretty good. I mean, they're pretty much dominant so far. And, you know, most people would not. You look at the Mets roster, you look at their starting staff. Yeah, you see why they're that good. But offensively, like, it doesn't it doesn't wow me, to be honest with you. But the production that they're getting from guys that are unexpected is why the Mets have been competing. And, you know, the Mets are one of those teams in the NL. And if you're the Mets, which team in the NL do you not want to face in the postseason? Yeah, before I answer that, I get your point about the the younger, the no-name kind of, not no-name guys, but the guys you haven't heard of with long track records. It's a very, like the Braves last year at the postseason, at the trade deadline, won out and got four veteran bats all plug in their lineup. It's kind of almost what the, every MLB team seems to be doing. They shy away. It's so analytically driven now. They shy away from the bigger names, like kind of what the Yankees have done with like, you know, Trevino and IKF. They're not guys you trust because they're so young, but they've been producing. Well, IKF's kind of struggled, but Trevino has been producing now. The Mets are kind of like that with Vogelback, Naquin, and Roth. They're not big names, but they're very good at what they do. And it's, you almost don't want to trust it, but at some point they're just so good. You end up trusting it. But the team I don't want to face the most it's, it's a good question. It's I mean, I think it's got to be the Dodgers. The Dodgers' offense has been historically good. They're beating their opponents this season by an average of 2.3 runs a game, which that's one of the biggest run differentials in MLB history, just based off the they, – I saw this stat in the last month. The Dodgers also – the Mets are kind of overshadowing every other baseball team at the moment. Like, it's good that for the Yankees that the Mets are this good right now because it feels like the Yankees aren't being talked about a lot right now. Their struggles recently. The Dodgers seem to be flying under the radar too, which is weird. They've won 10 straight games. 
and they've I saw some stat they've outscored their opponents the last month like 268 to 113 it's just it's ridiculous almost and that that's got to be the team I don't want to face I would want to face the least just because we just talked about bullpen I mean of the Mets being questionable well the first three guys in the lineup for the Dodgers are Mookie Betts, Bray Freeman, and Trey Turner and they also got guys like Cody Bellinger hitting ninth Cody Bellinger is your nine hitter your lineup is historically good so I think they're the team I would want to face the least though they're starting pitching staff does not scare me like some other teams would I don't I don't really fear Walker Bueller the Mets kind of beat him up early this year Kershaw he's hurt and he's in the later stages Julio Arias so they don't scare me that the offense is scary but I mean on every position group almost I would feel like I like the Mets against any team in the NL at the moment obviously things can change by the time September rolls around but the Dodgers would be the team I'd least want to face and if Tatis comes back, the Padres are kind of scary because they have a pretty solid pitching staff too, but they seem to not be able to win games and they're tied for the last playoff spot right now. So, so there's a lot. There's a lot. The Dodgers are definitely the team. I mean, it has to be the Dodgers. Yeah, I think I think you're right on. I think the Dodgers pitching staff is kind of like iffy, but I think it is the Dodgers. You expect them to be good, but a sneaky team is the San Diego Padres. Now, their pitching staff, in my opinion, is pretty underrated. You got just Joe Musgrove, who I don't know why he's not talked about right now. He's he's an elite starting oh, pitcher right really? now. Yeah. And that, that contract is, is extension, excuse me, is pretty team-friendly. Five years, $100 million for that guy, the way he's pitching right now, if he continues, that's a steal for the Padres. Yeah, sure, and uh... – the only team the Mets have been beaten up by this year is the Padres. I mean, they beat the Mets four out of six times they played this season. They're scary. I mean, you want to talk about scary lineups. Fernando Tatis, Juan Soto, and Manny Machado hitting one, two, three is a little intimidating. The back end of their lineup doesn't really scare me that much. There's a bunch of holes. Their outfield's a little sketchy now, so they're a little top-heavy. You talk about it, that pitching staff's pretty good. You can have John Bosgrove going game one, you Darvish going game two. Sean and I and Blake Snell, while they have struggled, are both guys with long track records of success. And Mike Clevenger, too. That's five guys who have experience on the bigger stages of baseball, even if they're not performing what they usually are. So they are definitely sneaky, just based off because they're cold now, so it feels weird. But when you get to October, you just got to be hot. For I mean, look at the Braves. The Braves had the worst record entering the playoffs last year and won the World Series. You just got to be hot at the right time. So the Braves have all the pieces to do exactly that. I think one team, I'll never really give them credit because I hate them, but the Phillies are flying under the radar right now. Phillies are they have the sixth best record in the MLB. The NL East actually has three of the six best record. And Bryce Harper hasn't played in two months. They're 25 and 13 without them. And when he comes back, they could be a little scary because their lineup is is big. It's it's long. You know, they kind of did the screw the defense kind of thing and added the offense. The defense has been much improved. And the Aaron Nola and Zach Wheeler dynamite one two punch who kind of fly under the radar too. I mean, I don't Syndergaard sucks. I don't care about him. But the one two punch there, it's pretty good. So what would you say your expectations are for the Mets? Because Let's be honest, the NL is definitely better than the AL this year. And, you know, you look at this right now and you look at the first round, you know, you have a bye, but you could go up against, you know, the Cardinals are a team, not scary because they didn't get Juan Soto, but they're a team who could be, you know, 
decent. They're always competitive. You never know how they'll do in October. But the Padres, those are two teams where you might have to play them. Maybe not the biggest threat to you guys, but still gonna still would be a tough first round matchup. Yeah, I think the expectations for the, the must, the Mets must make it to at least the NLCS. With this roster, DeGrom and Shares, I mean, they're not getting any younger. You have a two or three window here to win the World Series. I mean, World Series or bust is kind of, that's fine. I'm good with that. Winning the NL pennant, making the World Series is a big thing. But you can't lose in the first round. After all this hype, after all this historic season, you can't lose. If you lose in the first round, then that's when Steve Cohen goes out this offseason and gets pissed off and signs a guy like Aaron Judge or something like that. But this is, you got to make it to at least the second round. Uh, or at least the NLCS, which I think is very plausible, and they should. The Mets, I mean, I think the Padres will pass the Phillies in the standings and probably end up on the other side of the bracket, where it's Braves, Padres, winner plays Dodgers, which I hope all three of those teams are over there because they're obviously the three biggest threats, and the Mets will play the winner of, like, the Phillies Cardinals or something, which not exactly – I mean, the Phillies are a little underrated, but they're not – they don't match up with the Mets. So you got to get at least out of that first round. And you, I mean, there's not too many holes in the Mets. Like if you're talking, let's say they, you know, lose in the first round, you know, if you're talking off season wise with this small window, the only real upgrade you could have is, you know, an outfielder bring up the top prospect in third base and then just help out the bullpen. That's that those aren't major upgrades. No, no, when, when you look at teams like the Mets or Dodgers these days, the owners who have stupid amount of money. They don't really care about their holes. They just make upgrades over guys who are already good. Like the Mets will just replace someone who's like Brandon Nimmo's a free agent. The Mets have a ton of free agents. The end of the year, Brandon Nimmo, you know, DeGrom, Edwin Diaz, they'll resign. That could resign them all, just they, they can't. But when you if you fail early, it makes people pissed off and angry. And I read an article by Buster only on ESPN. And he said the only way the Mets would ever enter the Aaron Judd sweepstakes is if they got embarrassed in the first round. And then they'd be like, we got to make a big change and go out and give him way more money than he probably deserves. But I mean, that's it's highly unlikely. You're right. They really don't have holes. Their two biggest holes on offense are catcher and third base. And the Mets have two prospects who are two of the top 20 prospects in baseball. Alvarez rated by MLB as the best prospect. <laughs> who are both available next season. They're both in AAA. They're two top prospects, play their two positions of need. So there's not a whole lot they need to do in the offseason if they were to fail. But I don't know. I would I would be pretty stunned if they embarrassed themselves in the playoffs just because you have Scherzer and DeGrom, and those are as two sure bets when they're pitching as any. Yeah, I think if you're comparing both New York teams as a Yankee fan, I want to be non not biased here. And I think the Mets have less holes than the New York Yankees. Because I think the Yankees, starting pitching-wise, I think the Yankees are better than what certain Yankee fans are talking about just because I think they're steady guys, but obviously the Mets have them. Bullpen-wise, you know, they're kind of – they're about the same just because you have an elite closer. The Yankees have a good bullpen, but just been inconsistent at times. I'll give that to the Yankees. But if you're talking about lineup-wise, you know, position by position, you know, Pete Alonso versus Rizzo, to me that's a very hard – you know, thing to say who's better just because, you know, R- what Rizzo brings is defense. Pete Alonso doesn't necessarily bring the best defense. So I think the only concern, I guess you could say, with the Mets would be defense in the playoffs just because, you know, McNeil is a guy who's a great second baseman. Don't get me wrong. He's also been all over the field. So he's not necessarily always been at second base. Third base is a He's decent, but he all again, Eduardo Escobar has been all over the field. 
Lindor is just filthy, and then obviously Alonzo is sketchy at first base. Yeah, no, I get that. But the Mets have been platooning Escobar with Luis Guillorme uh, at third base now, and Luis Guillorme's defense is ridiculous. So, I mean, I wouldn't be totally concerned. I mean, Peter Alonso is a whole lot better than he was, and Darren Ruff can play first base too, and Peter Alonso can DH. So they have options. Brandon Nimmo has been pretty good in center field and defense. So I wouldn't be a whole lot concerned. The only thing that if the Mets fall apart and don't win the World Series, I guarantee you it's because of their bullpen. I think that's the the bullpen has proved to be sketchy the last couple. The Mets have kind of pieced it through just because how good their starters have been. You haven't noticed it because Edwin Diaz has been great. They had the best closer in baseball and two of the best starters in baseball. And so when you piece it from those two to Diaz, it's pretty it's pretty easy. So I, I think if the Mets fall apart, it's the bullpen. But even as a Mets fan, unbiasedly, I would say also that the Mets have less holes than the Yankees. So now let's say World Series. Let's just say the Mets go to the World Series. Who do you want to face? You know, that's it's got to be the Yankees. It's got to be the it's got to be the Yankees or the Astros because it feels like the one way to prove yourself. Either either you got to prove yourself by beating the Yankees so you can like shut Yankee fans up, but the other way is by beating the Astros because you can't. There's not been a better team in baseball the last six or seven years than the Astros. So it's it's you have to beat one of the big guys to win a World Series, but as a fan of the Mets, I just want to win the World Series. I'd love to beat the Yankees in the World Series. I'd love to beat the Astros. But if you told me that, like, the Seattle Mariners ran through the playoffs and shocked the world and made the World Series, I'd beat them. Too. Like, I, I don't care. Just I want to be in the World Series. So that's kind of more of my mindset than, like, I want to play the Yankees. Sure, that'd be cool to beat the Yankees, but I would prefer to be in the World Series. Yeah, that's fair. I think when you're looking at from more of a fan's perspective, I think Mets fans want to play the Yankees in the World Series, and I think the Yankees fans want to play the Mets in the World Series just just so each each other can, you know, relive the times of the Subway Series and just sure. those times and see who's better because both teams are having historic years, and you just got to see who's going to have a better year this year, and it's definitely going to be interesting to see. What happens in the playoffs? I'm looking. I'm certainly looking forward to you know seeing what happens with the Yankees, my team. Obviously, I'm not as high on the Yankees as most Yankee fans are, but you know the Mets are having a historic year, and we'll see what uh, the New York baseball teams can do this year. Sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think if the Mets and the Yankees matched up in the World Series, there'd be a lot more pressure on the Yankees than the Mets. Just yeah, from like a fan perspective, because. If the Yankees beat the Mets, oh, their little brother, they're going to say that either way. The Mets beat the Yankees, it's like, oh, crap, is there a changing the car? There's going to be pressure on both sides because it's the Subway Series. Don't get me wrong. And the Mets are an aging team. If not now, then when? But, yeah, that would be quite the – that would be awesome for the game of baseball if the Yankees and Mets played in the World Series because they play in New York. They're two of the bigger brands. You know, you could dream some World Series up. Yankees, Astros in the ALCS, Mets, Dodgers in the NLCS. And then some form of those teams who those four are the most notable baseball teams outside of the Red Sox, those four teams, some combination of a world series would be pretty cool. And now moving over to the NFL, obviously both of us are giants fans, but we're not even going to talk about it just because the giants are just the giants. So what are your predictions just for the NFL season? So I'm at this NFL season is very exciting. If you look at the AFC, the AFC is loaded. There's there's really the Texans, the Jags are really the two teams in the AFC 
if you look go division by division that you would expect are a couple of years away from really competing. Other than that, that whole conference is loaded. The NFC is very different. It's very top heavy. You have the Rams, Bucks, and Packers and kind of a big fall off after that. So I'm a big, I'm a big fan of how the AFC is going to shake out because there's, I'm serious when I say there's about nine teams who could be in the Super Bowl and all of those teams who are Super Bowl caliber can't even make the playoffs. The NFC, you know, is is obviously weaker you would think there's three teams who can make the super bowl but if you wanted my super bowl prediction as of now i'm up for the third straight year predict the buffalo bills to win the super bowl and if i made that prediction now i'd probably see the bills beating i think at some point i think this is the perfect year for the packers to make the super bowl because everyone's down on them now that Devontae adams left and after being down and i'm not ever counting out aaron Rodgers. i think the bills beat the packers in the super bowl that is hilarious because I have the same exact prediction. Really? I've had the Bills Packers. I've never said who's won just because the guy always done done just just who's going to be in there. But I'll, I'm I'm going to say I'm actually going to say the Packers though because I think Rodgers is going to retire sooner or later. I think the Packers get it this year. And you wanted my sleeper too. So last year, this year's version of the Bengals, I think I got I can throw out a couple teams and. Well, the AFC doesn't really have this year's version of the Bengals just because of how loaded it is. So if you look division by division, you look in the north, the east, the Bills, obviously great. The Dolphins are not sneaky because of how much expectation there is on them. Though I think they could, I think Tua gets way too much hate. You way too much hate. That offense with Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle is going to be pretty unstoppable to stop. Um, the Jets aren't going to be this year's Bengals but the Jets roster is a whole lot better than people think and the AFC so like the Jets could go win five games and be very improved just based off how loaded it is but then you look at the AFC North wouldn't be shocking to see any of those four teams be good you look at the AFC South I really like the Colts I'm a big fan of the Colts their defense is loaded I think Matt Ryan's going to stabilize them too and then the AFC West is historically good um, I love the Chargers they're not this year's Bengals because they're loaded but I love this. They're too good to be that this year's Chargers. If you want two really outside-the-box sleepers, I love the Saints. I love everything about the Saints. Jameis Winston, he's got Chris Olave and Michael Thomas, Alvin Kamara. That's loaded with a great defense and a good offensive line. And you talk about the Giants. I actually like the Giants this season. This isn't just blind optimism. Not They're not going to win the Super Bowl. They're not going to make – they could sneak into the playoffs for a couple of reasons just based off the new coaching staff, the new weapons. They look to be healthy for once, and they play a fourth-place schedule. It's what happens when you're bad. You play bad team. The Giants have a stretch where they play the Seahawks, Lions, Texans, and Jaguars. I mean, they're not that they're much better than any four of those teams. <laughs> they could beat those teams. Um, so there's there's some optimism there. That one's not as fiery as the Saints. I could see the Giants sneak in the playoffs. I think the Giants – are just going to surprise some people just because I think everyone expects the Giants to suck every year now. So I think the Giants are going to surprise people. Daniel Jones is not the answer, but I think the Giants will still surprise some people. So those are those are my big predictions. I love – if you want my outside the box – not really outside the box, but if it's not the Bills in the AFC, I like the Chargers. I am not a Chiefs guy this year. I like the Chargers, and I like the Ravens. Lamar Jackson's contract thing, he's going to ball out this year. Yeah, so I've – going around with my sleeper picks. I've changed my sleeper picks probably like six times already, but this is what I'm going to go today. I'm going to go the Minnesota Vikings in the NFC. Sure. In the AFC, 
let's be honest, it's tough to really pick a sleeper sleeper. Because there aren't many, yeah. But I'm going to go with the New York Jets, and I think Zach Wilson is going to have one of the – not a Joe Burrow season, because, but I think he's going to have a you know season where he's competitive for the MVP. I'm not saying he wins the MVP. I'm saying a competitive for the MVP, Zach Wilson, just because all, all the weapons, all the – you know, just news going on with Zach Wilson just in general. I think he's just going to silence everybody. He's just going to have a absolutely fantastic year. And I think Zach Wilson is my kind of guy who I think is going to have a huge year, kind of comparable to Joe Burrow. I don't think they're going to win the Super Bowl necessarily, but I think they can make the playoffs with the additions they've made and stuff like that. Anyways, Zach, do you have any last words, any Anything for our uh, listeners just to wrap up episode 11? Just, just I'll be back on Derek's discussion November 2nd to talk about the Mets World Series title. Come on, come on. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Derek.